Hey everyone, Zach here. Uh, just wanted to quickly let you all know, in case you missed it, we launched Enrollify Chatter last week. Chatter is a feedback platform built to help enrollment marketers find the software, services, and resources that they need for success. It's your one-stop shop for reviews on things like CRMs, student information systems, application software, marketing agencies, branding agencies, higher education associations, and uh, much, much more. Um, we really designed Chatter to be a place where great decisions start and we want to build this into a truly robust resource so that all enrollment marketers can make the right purchasing decisions with their budgets um, so go ahead and head on over to enrollify.org forward slash chatter or just go to our website and click to chatter from there and leave your first review we're offering gift cards so ten dollar amazon gift cards for everyone that leaves a review so go ahead and if you leave a review uh, ping me with an email and we'll be happy to get you that gift card again we're really really excited about chatter and looking forward to it being a true resource for the industry so again once and and finally uh head on over to enrollify.org forward slash chatter and leave your first review Thanks. Hello and welcome to the Enrollify podcast. My name is Zach Buzicruz and today I am here with Suzanne Brinker who is a higher education marketing strategist. Welcome to the show, Suzanne. Hi, Zach. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Suzanne, you have a fantastically interesting story and you've done a lot uh, professionally in a relatively short period of time. So I'd love for you to just start by giving us um, a, a sort of Cliff's Notes overview of your career today. It's something that I ask all guests on the show to sort of start with to just kind of lay a solid foundation for our listeners that we can kind of build on as we as we go throughout our conversations today. So could you just give us a little bit of a sense of what you've done recently and what you do today? Sure, yeah. Um, so I grew up in Germany um, with a Turkish father and a German mother. And so I always sort of had on my mind this idea of belonging and wanting to be in environments where I fit in and where I could relate to people. And so college campuses pretty early on became that place for me, um, especially after I moved to the U.S. Um, as a German international student in 2006. Um, and especially because when I moved to the U.S. just by circumstance and because my university in Germany had a partnership with a small liberal arts college called St. Norbert College up in northern Wisconsin, Green Bay, um, I ended up in a pretty rural place. Um, and so being on campus, you know, was really different than being out and about in northern Wisconsin. And I felt that it was really my lifeline to the world where I could meet people with diverse backgrounds and feel like I really belong and just work on always trying to transform my life um, into sort of to the next level of where I wanted to get to. Um, and so pretty quickly, I kind of saw myself going into higher education and spending my life on college campuses to some extent. Um, and so when I was in grad school, I met my now husband. He wanted to go to Penn State for his PhD, which was a great opportunity. And I said, you know, OK, I'm used to living in rural places. Penn State is in the middle of Pennsylvania. Um, the university is really the only thing there that um, <laughs> is really interesting to me, at least. I mean, there's the Amish and other really interesting things. But um, Penn State was definitely also kind of like that that hub. And so um, I decided to to work for Penn State um, in marketing. I've always been 
a writer first, but then developed a marketing skill set um, around my interests and joined Penn State as um, initially I was a marketing manager and then worked my way up to become an associate director and a director of marketing. Um, and I was in the unit called Penn State World Campus and outreach and online education is kind of the bigger division. And um, Penn State World Campus was sort of a pioneer in online learning, started in the early 2000s. They now have um, well over 100 undergraduate and graduate degree programs um, that they offer. And um, it was really fun to work there. And I fell in love not just with the mission of higher ed, which I was already kind of in love with, but also with the business side of higher education. And so decided to also get my Ph.D. in higher ed um, while I was working full time. Um, finished that in 2018 and then moved to Boston with my family and started as director of marketing for Northeastern. Um, and there I was in the enrollment management unit. Um, and that was really fun, really fast paced. Northeastern, of course, is super innovative in a lot of different ways. And then last summer, I decided, you know, I've had this dream to um, kind of become an entrepreneur and do more entrepreneurial things for a long time. Um, the timing at the place was never really quite right before, but now it felt like it was. And so um, I left my full-time job and um, now I lead a new higher education marketing agency called Viv Higher Education here in Boston. And I also enjoy doing independent consulting. So um, working with a variety of different um, teams there as well. Thank you that's for that. Yeah, no, that's 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 really helpful context. And uh, you know, as as I said earlier, you you really have done a fair amount in a in a short period of time. I you know I actually want you to share, if you wouldn't mind, um, a little bit about the lessons you learned as director of marketing at at Penn State and Northeastern. Um, you know, you spent some time working in consulting at an agency before you made your way into higher ed, and I'm curious to know. You know, you've already dabbled on. You know what sort of inspired you to to pursue higher ed but i'd love you to sort of flesh out a little bit more for us um how, you know sort of the, the nuances that exist in higher ed specifically from a marketing standpoint so and how, mm -hmm. you know how does this compare to the agency side of things you know a lot of our listeners are obviously enrollment marketers they're working in higher ed marcom or enrollment management at an institution and, and you know i think that sometimes people can forget that while there are certainly you know similarities there's also a lot of differences in how higher ed thinks about marketing from how the rest of the world thinks about marketing so what were some of the lessons that you learned as you stepped into these roles, both at Penn State and at Northeastern, that you can share with our listeners? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I actually, so the agency work that I was doing mostly um, happened, I mean, I did some agency work um, up in Green Bay and then later in Milwaukee, sort of while in between my undergrad and my grad degrees, and then also while I was in grad school. Um, and like I said, you know, then moving to the middle of Pennsylvania, a lot of those options just were no longer there. So it's kind of like, okay, now I'll, now I'll go in house. That seemed like the next step. But what I really liked about consulting and agency work is um, that you you're kind of always selling, um, you know, not just the first time you meet with a prospective client, but every time you meet with them after, and you're always sort of trying to really prove your worth. Um, and while that can be really challenging, I think it also really helps the end result um, of the work that you're putting out there. And so maybe, you know, what was a little bit different about um, coming in-house was that a lot of the time um, people had been working there for, you know, years and sometimes decades. Yeah. And um, there was less of a 
culture and less of an incentive to really always try to improve your skill set and to think about new tools and and how to convince your partners that you you had really done your due diligence, if that makes sense. So I really struggled with that at the beginning. And I thought, you know, I, I really like to take an entrepreneurial and innovative approach to everything. And so I, I needed to find the people that really allowed me to do that. I was really fortunate at Penn State because I had an amazing boss. Um, and actually, my, my boss's boss, the, ultimately, who became the VP um, of outreach, they were both fantastic. And so they they enabled me to to be really innovative there as well. But it was definitely a, a shift, I would say. No, I'd love that you hit on that because I think that one of the things that a lot of people, a lot of our listeners, when they, you know, reach out to me or they, um, you know, uh, message me on on LinkedIn or something, they talk about sort of this tension that exists, right? Of like, hey, I see all these really cool things happening in sort of the greater marketing world and it's just so hard to figure out how to translate this into vernacular that like my boss will understand. He's, you know, been director of Marcom for 15 years. Mm Um, and I think that one of the one of the real challenges for especially younger professionals in this space is, you know, how I, I have a passion for higher ed, I have a passion for student recruitment, I want to stay in this space, I believe in the value of higher education, but at the same time, right, I want to be innovative and I want to adapt and I want to improve. And I think it can be it can be really challenging to figure to uh, figure out how to do that in a context that at times can seem pretty archaic and and pretty slow. So. Uh, you know, just a follow up question there is, were you able to like, how did you help keep sort of the, uh, the innovative spirit, if you will, alive? And is there any particular uh, story, uh, you know, that comes to mind around a time when you were able to uh, remain innovative and remain adaptive, even when, you know, resources were tight, or, you know, you might have not had full buy in from your leadership? Yeah, um, I mean, I'm really glad that I had the opportunity, by the way, to work in-house and uh, on the outside because it really helps you be more effective in both environments and contexts. And one of the things that I would not have if I had not been in-house um, would be sort of the an understanding of the importance of the organizational culture and the diverse stakeholders that you're dealing with in a university environment. Like you can be the most strategic thinker, you can be the best marketer in the world. If you don't know how to build consensus across faculty, administrators, siloed departments, you will not be able to lead effectively. Um, And so I think the most innovative work that we did, I mean, we did a ton of things that were super innovative actually at World Campus, like we're building an international recruitment strategy for strictly online programs. We were trying to do um, a really substantial B2B partnership um, strategy. We're um, trying to do micro-credentials, you know, competency-based education. We were kind of dabbling in everything um, that sort of all the the crucial parts of what we define to be the future of higher ed. And... um, there were always people who were really gung-ho about it and people who were like, that's never going to work. You know, we, we can't do that. Like the register will never allow it. Or, you know, this person doesn't like these types of ideas. And so it was really, the innovation was really about consensus building. It Mm. wasn't about bringing in like the shiniest new tool or, um, you know, even the most um, impressive data to show that the future was headed a certain way. It was how do you get people around a table and have them actually believe that this is possible? Um, and to Penn State's credit, it was one of the places that was first to market with a really, really high quality online learning experience. You know, so it's not a place where innovation never happens. 
Um, but it only happens when there's really strong leadership and when there's strong um, incentive from the top. So as more of a mid-level manager or director, you know, how do you drive that innovation no matter what the leadership looks like? We'll jump right back into the conversation after a quick message from this episode's sponsor. You know that feeling you get when your boss tells you to go find a new CRM? Or when you're tasked with finding a handful of digital agencies to respond to your RFP? It's exciting, but also overwhelming. Where do you start? How do you know what system or service provider is the best fit for your school's unique context? Introducing Chatter, a feedback platform built to help enrollment marketers find the software, services, and resources they need for success. Chatter is your one-stop shop for reviews on CRMs, student information systems, application software, marketing agencies, online program managers, branding agencies, higher education associations, professional development resources, and much, much more. Our goal is to equip you with the information that you need to make the right purchasing decision for your enrollment management or marketing and communications team. Get started by reading reviews and writing one of your own, and then invite your colleagues to do the same. Shatter, where great decisions start. I love the idea of consensus building being something that is innovative, right? Like, and I I think that that's not, you know, that's not a stretch. Like that's, that's really, really true, especially in a more, you know, traditionally archaic and or hierarchical structure, uh, building sort of buy-in, getting buy-in and building trust from multiple stakeholders is essential to getting anything done. Um, you know, and I think that that sort of uh, is a nice segue into what we want to talk about today, which is really sort of the, a a few kind of core impactful strategies and tactics that enrollment marketers can tap into during this moment, uh, to help mitigate, uh, the chaos that COVID-19 has sort of, uh, you know, ushered us all into. And, you know, in particular, there's just a lot of fear out there right now about enrollment pipelines. People are really nervous, not just about fall of 2020, but mm-hmm. about spring of 2021 and fall mm-hmm. of 2021, you know. And um, one of the things that you shared earlier uh, on, you know, as we were as we were chatting, which really stuck out, stood out to me was this idea of this is like a fantastic moment to be leveraging our faculty. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, where many people are living through a moment where budgets are frozen or, you know, they're already fully spoken for, they're fully allocated. I'm curious to know how you think enrollment marketers can better equip faculty members to become, you know, even better advocates for their programs during a time when so many people are struggling with frozen advertising or marketing budgets and feeling overwhelmed and adjusting to new routines. How can faculty members be used as uh, an asset in this moment? Um, Yeah, I think faculty members are not just key to um, sort of marketing and admissions outreach, but they're also really important when it comes to tweaking programs um, to better serve market need. Uh, but it all starts with being really collaborative with faculty and having good relationships with them. I mean, one of the things that I came across at Penn State, Northeastern, and other universities 
entities that I've worked with is um, that marketers often feel like they're being seen as order takers, um, you know, that they're being told by faculty, even to some extent, deans, associate deans and other stakeholders, you know, we need to do this, uh, get it done. And oftentimes they feel like the requests that they're getting are not the most strategic. And that in and of itself, I think, is true that that can be a problem. But on the flip side, um, what that drives is kind of mentality within marketing to become more defensive and to say no more and say, you know, we're not going to be able to do this. We have to focus on just enrollments. And we have to use every dollar and every hour in the most strategic way possible. And so then there's sort of this blame game that happens between marketing and admissions and faculty and once you've kind of figured out how to be really collaborative across the board, um, you can talk about what's actually going to make the biggest impact for students and prospects and everything else falls by the wayside. And right now, people are worried, not just um, faculty and marketers about enrollments, but students are worried about their futures, about their college experience that they're maybe not going to have in the same way that they imagined. Um, they're worried about uh, the job market about making sure that they invest the tuition dollars in the best way possible. And um, I think the best way that faculty, the best way that faculty can currently um, help is to roll up their sleeves and get out there and connect with students. Um, that's, you know, possible in a scalable way through videos and blog posts and potentially webinars or other um, sort of scalable platforms. But also there is an opportunity to have faculty meet directly one-on-one um, -on -one or in small groups with prospects and admitted um, students and applicants. Um, so I would, you know, I think now is not the time to back off your conversations with faculty. Now, now is the time to reach kind of across the table and say, hey, we're all in this together, you know, and it's about our students. So how do we make it? How do we make it easier for them? How do we relieve stress? How do we connect with them virtually in a still meaningful way? I love that. And I think that, you know, one of the things that is likely some of the fruit that's likely to come from this moment uh, is this sort of a, a hopefully anyways, a deeper appreciation, both on the faculty side of things and on the marketer side of things about the work that the other does. And mm -hmm. I think that there's this really, really, really unique opportunity for faculty members to join admissions folks, to join enrollment marketers and hop on those informational sessions, right? Those virtual information sessions and maybe even introduce themselves earlier on in a prospective student's journey to enrollment than they would yeah. otherwise do. And I think that there's like huge, huge opportunity for faculty members, you know, even if it's even it's if it's something like a virtual fireside chat where you've got the enrollment manager interviewing Dr. So and so, right? And mm -hmm. soliciting questions from from um, people who are tuning into the conversation or questions that have been scripted ahead of time, what, whatever it might be, I think that there's incredible opportunity to show unity right now. And that this, you know, really could actually, you know, change the way in which the administrative side of, the, of higher ed kind of uh, relates with the industry experts associated with the institution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And you asked about a story um, when we're able to work really well with faculty. And that one um, goes back to 2013 when I started at Penn State. There was this notion that there was this huge untapped opportunity um, to recruit international students in our 100 percent online degree programs. Um, faculty were used to having, you know, more than 50 percent of their cohorts be international on the residential side. And so they thought that should absolutely be possible online as well. 
um, and the reality was really quite different. And we were sort of fighting with them, right? Like the faculty and the deans and academic stakeholders were saying, why aren't you guys bringing us more international students online? Like our numbers were really low, like 1% on the undergraduate side and I think 3% on the grad side or 4%. And um, so instead of just telling them that they were wrong, you know, and leaving it at that, we actually decided to um, do market research and we hired a, a third party, a vendor that was able to be neutral in all of this. And they did quite a bit of market research to show that there were actually a lot of barriers and a lot of concerns on behalf of international students uh, when it comes to just coming paying full tuition price for an online experience from their home country, such as bandwidth and um, you know internet um, bandwidth, language um, barriers, intercultural barriers, time zone differences, um, all those things. And the, the research was really well done. And so when we were done with it, we didn't just say, hey, we told you so, you know, we're not going to do anything. We then went on a roadshow basically across the entire university, like all the way to the faculty senate and board of trustees and president's cabinet and the online learning steering committee, which had all the associate deans and just faculty that were really interested um, and the ones that were maybe not so interested and um, told them about this research, um, but we, we made it very positive because we still, despite um, the data showing that globally the opportunity was a lot lower than maybe we had initially um, been told, there were a couple of markets that were unexpectedly very ripe for um, some promotions around uh, full online degrees. And so we started message testing, we did photo shoots that we included faculty in um, that were really, the photos ended up being really great. Um, and we piloted some marketing campaigns and we saw some really great results from those, um, especially in South Korea. And we're able to recruit students at a lower acquisition cost um, than we were previously. And it was really cool because I eventually did my dissertation on global online innovation and I was interviewing a lot of um, leaders in the university and they didn't necessarily know that I had led that initiative. And when I asked them questions, they were telling me, you know, hey, you know, the, um, the opportunity is not as high internationally as we thought. And here's some research that Penn State did. And I was like, yeah, right. <laughs> so it was just really, really cool because Penn State is huge, right? It's such a big system. And to know that that communication that we strategically put out there was actually absorbed and embraced was so great. And ever since then, I've really been of the mind that you can't over-communicate enough, right? Especially around um, strategic initiatives that matter so much to an institution. I love that. And, you know, I, I one of the things I love about what we get to do in, in enrollment marketing, right, is a lot of the rest of the world, right, when it comes to marketing, they have to, like, if you're a Coke, right, if you're, if you're a Pepsi, right, if you're a Nike, you've got to uh, invent stories to sell your product or sell your service, right? Mm. Like, when enrollment marketers get to tap into the legitimate real life stories of industry thought leaders in the context of a faculty member or a student. And I think that, you know, in addition to leveraging you know, faculty members as quote unquote salespeople, right, for programs right now, also just really tapping into their story and their research and understanding how to present that research uh, 
through sort of a, a, a marketing lens, right? A lens that can be used for conversion is, mm-hmm. is a ripe opportunity. And I think that the, the schools that I have seen that do a really exceptional job from an enrollment marketing standpoint are the schools that have figured out how to create solid feedback loops between faculty, between admissions and, and, and between marketing. And I think right. that right now, like, there's there's no excuse, right? Everything has dis- been disrupted. The status quo has gone out the door. There's this really cool op- moment, really, to to rebuild and um, to start part of that sort of rebuilding process by saying, you know what? In order to scale here, we've got to be we've got to be scrappy. In order to meet our numbers, there's there's really nothing else that we can do but lean on one another and you know you know hope hope that uh, we're still here in the fall. And I think that like one of the very practical ways in which enrollment marketers can move the needle here is by understanding and taking the time to ask faculty members because most of them right they, they want to talk about themselves or they want to talk about the research Absolutely. that they're doing yeah right they're yeah. smart smart people and so if we get as enrollment marketers can ask them hey tell me what's most exciting about what you're doing right now um, and really the opportunity that you are that you believe exists for and really the need for more people in this field and how can I translate that into a story that will compel other people to to join the cause so to speak yeah and don't hesitate to find examples um, that you actually as a marketer think would work really well because I think the concern is often that faculty want to talk about themselves in a way that doesn't interest prospective students and that it's too much information, maybe too dry, but, you know, pull up like NASA's Instagram stories are fantastic. I mean, I was just watching it yesterday and I thought, this is what higher ed needs needs to do. We need to figure out how to um, take research that is so impactful and show why it matters so much and how interesting it really is. You know, we don't have to just put Instagram photos of campus with squirrels on it up we can talk about what actually (laughs) happens at these renowned universities so I think you're absolutely right yeah and and that's so fun for both sides right and it builds a bridge for sure so there's a lot of fear and uncertainty right now we've touched on that a fair amount already but you know we're right now more and more people uh, you know, I would argue that it, ROI is always uh, important and that higher ed as a whole, specifically higher ed uh, marketing folks, have a long way to go uh, and a lot of progress that I believe can be made in really designing and executing uh, campaigns that yield positive ROI and and really positive ROI. I think that there's lots of room for improvement here. Um, mm-hmm. But nevertheless, right, as all sorts of budgets get questioned right now. Um, ROI has never been more important. So I'm curious to hear just from your experience working in-house, working with agencies in more of a consultant sort of role throughout the years, what do you think, in, in your opinion, is sort of like a crawl, walk, run strategy that higher ed marketers um, can consider as they rethink their student recruitment strategies and tactics over the next over the next six to 12 months? Are there are there particular do's and don'ts that you think are especially crucial right now? Mm. Well, I, I always recommend starting with the low hanging fruit. Um, so if people have, you know, additional budget this late into the fiscal year when things have shifted so dramatically, look at your data and determine where you can have the biggest impact with your time and dollars. Like 
right now, you know, are there students in your region who will be stuck at home this summer that maybe wouldn't have been there if COVID-19 hadn't hit um, that could benefit from online courses and which online courses, you know, get really specific um, and then run a geo-targeted campaign and tweak it based on the results. Um, you can hire a vendor for that if you don't currently have the in-house capacity or you can do it yourselves. Um, and then after that, look at the medium term and what makes sense for like the medium term strategies is usually um, really going deep on audience and developing personas um, based on your current student data, you know, who will be the most likely to need the programs in your portfolio. So a medium term strategy doesn't yet look at tweaking product. It looks at who needs the product you have. Um, like we know from the 2008 recession that higher ed will likely on the graduate side benefit from um, what's happening right now in the economy. Um, so understand your audiences and reach them um, and help faculty position their programs um, to them. And then when it comes to the long-term plan, long-term strategies, that's when we can really look at, you know, what are your programs looking like and are you really hitting the biggest needs in the marketplace? Um, oftentimes the reason a program is not performing has very little to do with how it's marketed and what the messaging is. It's usually more about um, it being either outdated or um, never having actually been particularly relevant in the market. Um, so looking closely at what you're hearing from prospective students that don't enroll into those programs, you know, do you need to figure out a way to offer more scholarships? Do they simply need more start times? Do they want different specializations that you could actually pretty easily offer as part of the curriculum? Um, do they need a different delivery mode or does the pro program have to be retired um, and sunsetted so that the faculty can focus on things that are a little bit more relevant? And um, don't draw the line just on, with degrees. Also look at um, non-credit, micro-credentials um, and boot camps and things like that, because those will be more and more relevant. So in many ways, right, like the future of higher ed is arriving a little bit quicker now because of COVID-19 hitting. But again, you have to look at what you were saying earlier. I loved it, right? It has to be across marketing admissions and faculty. You can't fix these really long-term, the most impactful problems if you don't have faculty at the table with you and collaborating with you. Do you think that what we're going to see after, you know, if and when there's any sort of uh, normal that we that we all return to, not if there there will be some normal that we that we all return to. Um, but, you know, uh, what do you think this means for I'm, I'm specifically interested in your, your last comments there on credentials um, coming up with, uh, you know, maybe even additional certificate programs. Do you predict just based off of, again, you know, what you know and what you've experienced in the industry thus far that we're going to see sort of this resurgence of uh, or, you know, maybe even just an additional rolling out of credential offerings and in light of all of this, because people are going to be interested in going back to school potentially or interested in, you know, increasing their skill set in, in an area. But the idea of paying for or enrolling in a one, two or three year graduate program just feels too, uh, too cumbersome or, or um, you know, the, the bar is, is too high to reach. What sort of impact do you think is uh, is going to happen specifically at like the let's just say like the graduate level after all of this settles? Yeah, super good question. I think the problem so far with credentials and, and non-credit offerings and also even degree-bearing certificates has been that 
more than anything, they've been put out there because they were supposed to be kind of quick revenue generators and yeah, they were designed yeah. around existing programs, um, you know, where like uh, maybe a business school says, hey, we have all these master's programs. Let's also chunk them down into into 12 credit certificates and then let's also offer them as a boot camp. And they're still quite expensive, um, you know, and, and I think that's not the best approach. I think the best approach is to actually look at um, – the students and what the students need to um, thrive in the economy that is now going to be dramatically shifted. Um, and we know that there have been some providers like edX and Coursera and in Britain future learn who are doing this a lot better than universities. typically. Yeah. And then we have universities like SNHU and ASU and Georgia tech and others who have been doing a really tremendous job as well. So I think the demand is going to be there, but it's going to be really tricky to um, to meet it when you're not willing to truly innovate. And that's really my concern is that higher, that universities are so focused on degrees that it's difficult for them to also do a really good job um, in the non-credit space. Yeah, you know, and maybe this, this experience that we're all liver, living through right now is is really the catalyst necessary mm -hmm. to to rethink that, um, you know, especially as you know other even other offerings like General Assembly and Lambda School as sort of these other you know alternative ways to quickly learn something that is going to advance your career, advance your your salary in some in some capacity as those continue to become more reliable and as more student success stories are are written about those sorts of of, of paths. Uh, even more so, uh, especially at the graduate level, is higher education going to need to present its value um, and, yeah. and position its value as as something different and something additionally uh, special? Um, so it'll be. I'm very, very excited mm -hmm. actually about like the marketing campaigns that we'll see and the slogans that we'll see after COVID nineteen. Um, I know. Aren't you on the edge of your? I, I am. Um, well, the one thing that higher ed has going for it itself is that it's also it's not just about um, preparing students for their careers it's yeah, also yeah. about belonging and about um, transform transformative experiences that take you basically from childhood to adulthood at least on the undergraduate side and to the undergraduate side it's still about putting you in a really transformative environment um, to, to get yourself to the next level but now that the campus experience for the time being has been stripped away, you know, that's going to change things. We don't know exactly how it's going to change demand um, long term, but I'm very curious to see what it does. Absolutely. You know, and I have this crazy prediction. I'm sure there's uh, there are people out there that are a lot smarter than me that have talked about this. But um, I think that we're going to see a return to I don't know when, maybe the next three years or so that more graduate education, the people that are interested in grad school will actually want in-person uh, programs and experiences. Because I, my theory is that as more and more work continues to like what, what is happening right now is we're proving right to corporate America to, you know, uh, regardless of if you work in uh, the government, you work for an institution, or you, regardless of where you work, we're proving to the world that we can work remotely. We have to work remotely. It's mm -hmm. our only option, mm -hmm. right? And a lot of mm -hmm. the a lot of the barriers or, or fears of remote work, right, 
are subsiding because it's, it's this or nothing. And so what I think will be interesting to see and what I predict is that for, and, and maybe professional degrees will be a little bit different here, but for non-professional graduate degrees, what I think will happen is the people that do seriously want to pursue it, you know, a uh, higher education, again, post, you know, anything uh, of, um, uh, above the, the bachelor's degree, they're going to actually want and crave the community that comes along with it. And I, mm-hmm. I do think that like while we can do a lot with virtual community building, it's just not the same as an in-person dynamic conversation. Um, so, well, and that's the irony of all of this, you know, that when everybody started working from home and universities announced that they were going to go online for the rest of the spring, and, and now we know it's going to be longer than that, but it looked like this great um, potential turning point for online education to become more accepted, but it, it's looking like it's actually doing the opposite, yeah. um, and online rep- uh, education is getting a bad rap right now. <laughs> Um, so, you know, as someone who really believes in the power of online education, that's not necessarily something where I'm like, haha, look at that. But as someone who also really loves like an in-person seminar, you know, and the relationships that you can only form face to face on a college campus, you know, I, I'm glad that that's not going to go away because of what you're saying. People are going to crave it more and more after all this. Yeah, I mean, you know, for, for if nothing else, just to not be on Zoom, right, for, for yeah. longer than you have to be. It's like yeah. as more and more, I, I mean, you know, people have talked about Zoom fatigue recently over the past few days in particular, and it's it's just so true. It's 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 harder to work remotely when it's harder to have meaning, meaningful dialogue and, and productive meetings. And, you know, it can happen, and quite frankly, it's amazing. It is, it is unbelievably amazing how I've, on the whole, I think, society has transitioned and there there is a lot of success and that and that is like um, that that wouldn't have happened 10 years ago right mm-hmm. so you know that's that's exciting but i do really believe that for the people that are really lovers of education they're lifelong learners and they crave to advance their knowledge in a particular space in a particular field that there's going to be this return to the on-campus experience um yeah and it doesn't have to be either or you know, yeah exactly both worlds is hybrid and where people can do the work that can happen online um in a flexible format but you still want to be rooted in a, a community um and, and, you know, what that exactly looks like, I think we will find out because that just makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah. All right. I've got one final question for you. Mm-hmm. You ready for it? Yeah. Okay. So you have $10,000 that you have to spend on a marketing campaign over the next 30 days. Um, and, you know, we're living in the reality that we're living through right now. Uh, how do you spend that money and how will you measure the campaign's success? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, it's a really good and really tough question because I'm not exactly sure, you know, am I marketing an undergrad degree? Am I marketing a portfolio on the graduate side? What is it? So I'm probably going to say that like many good marketers, I would want to use that money to figure out what I don't know, um, especially in an environment that has really shifted. And I might take that money and invest it into maybe not full-blown market research because it's only 10000 but, you know, some sort of an assessment um, that helps me understand what students really need right now. Um, under usual circumstances, you know, an assessment can be a competitive analysis, value prop mapping, like SEO memos, could even do some really strategic content marketing um, campaigns with that. Um, right now, it might just be more um, 
investing it into some focus groups with prospective students um, and doing some message testing to figure out what are the messages that are going to resonate in this really stressful time. Great. So basically what you would do is you would say, hey, you know, this isn't an incredible amount of money. I don't want to blow this on a Google ad campaign. Uh, there's yeah. so much uncertainty right now. Let me use this to get a sense of what people are saying so that I can build something, you know, better tomorrow. Yeah. I mean, I might take some some guesses that I have about what we should say to people and I might put them, you know, put images and combinations of images and taglines up on um, you know, a, a research platform and have actual prospects react to them and rank them for me. And then I would hopefully get more money from leadership because I've shown that I've done my due diligence and then I would invest that money into a, a campaign that I know is going to actually perform. Love it. Very well thought out. I know that was a rough <laughs> one, but good job. Good job. Yeah, thank, you. thank you. But that was the hardest one. <laughs> <laughs> well, Suzanne, thank you so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thanks for sharing uh, your story with us. Thanks for sharing uh, lots of really good pieces of advice for our listeners. Um, and, you know, if folks want to reach out to you or, uh, you know, learn a little bit more about what you're doing right now, what's the best way for them to reach you? Oh, sure. I'm on LinkedIn, Suzanne Brinker, S as in Sam, U-Z-A-N, and then Brinker, B as in boy, R-I-N-K-E-R. Um, and my email address is just suzannebrinker at gmail.com if you want to reach me that way. And um, I just want to say thank you to you, Zach. I, I know I speak probably on behalf of a lot of higher ed professionals um, when I say that this resource that you're putting out there in this podcast and in Rollify is extremely appreciated um, and very much needed. And it's a great place for all of us to come together to be more strategic and solve um, problems with and for colleges and universities better. Well, thank you. I re really appreciate uh, appreciate it. I can't even speak. I'm so moved, so overwhelmed. <laughs> no, but uh, thank you for your time. And I'm sure we'll be speaking again soon. Thank you. All right. If you are an enrollment marketer, working in marketing and communications or enrollment management and would be willing to be interviewed on the podcast or if you have an idea for a topic that you'd like to hear covered on the podcast please reach out directly to me at zach z-a-c-h at enrollify.org we sincerely look forward to working with you to make enrollify the most trusted go-to digital resource for enrollment marketers out there <laughs>